Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this is the second in our special series on the significance of 1989. I'm sitting in Dubai and I'm very happy to be joined by Fyodor Lukyanov, who is the editor-in-chief of Russia in Global Affairs and one of the most thoughtful commentators on Russian foreign policy. Fyodor, everyone's looking back at the events of, of 1989 and the 30th anniversary, and people are celebrating it in some places. I'm not sure if the clapping that we're hearing is a celebration of 19, 1989. Let's believe they do. <laughs> but other people see it as a, a turning point in global affairs in other ways. I mean, from your perspective, what do you think the, the sort of long-term legacy is, particularly in terms of how Russia sees the world? First of all, uh, yes, of course, uh, for uh, all us living in Europe, be it uh, in Russia or in the contemporary European Union, 89 was the turning point for people in the Soviet Union. Of course, 89 started change, and the change was not completed, but Take it to the next level, 91. Yeah, 91. <laughs> but 89 was, by the way, very important for Soviet Union, even before Polish development and a fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, because in, I think it was early June, 89, it was the first ever democratically elected People's Congress, which created enormous atmosphere around it, and uh, people could not believe their eyes watching TV because those persons and those statements, which were totally banned very recently, they started to, to speak publicly in live broadcasting. People, the dissidents from uh, Baltic states, Georgian uh, independence fighters, academician Andrei Sakharov, who was prisoner before. So that was really unbelievable. And I remember that feeling. I was a student at that time at the Moscow State University. And we really, it was very difficult to overestimate the feeling of open, openness of something and, of course, extremely positive expectations and so on. Looking back 30 years after, I would say that, of course, maybe I will never again experience that level of positive euphoria because what happened in our country after this wave of enthusiasm brought us to conclusion that euphoria is not necessary. So you need to be realistic even if there is a feeling of very uh, big positive change because most of expectations of that period never came true in, in, in case of Soviet Union and Russia. The Russian development since '89 until now was obviously very much different than development in, uh, in Europe, in, in the current European Union. I would say the most interesting phenomenon is that for both Russians and Europeans, that was the starting point, same starting point. But we went diverging paths, the diverging ways after that. And this is, this is a strange feeling that new generation and those who were born that year and even later, they are now in business, in administration, in academia, everywhere, both in Europe and in, and in Russia. And then 
when we experienced this opening, uh, we had a feeling that next generations of Russians and Westerners will be closer and closer to, uh, to each other. Now it's almost the opposite because the whole development, again, from same starting point, but completely different directions and completely different experience. So now I would say that lack of uh, mutual understanding, which is quite obvious uh, between Russia and the West, is now worse than it used to be during the Cold War and uh, uh, when Iron Curtain was, was in place. Because, paradoxically, Cold War was joint venture by <laughs> U.S. And, and Soviet. Confrontational one, but, but it was an enterprise where both sides had to stick to certain rules of behavior because it was too dangerous to violate those rules. It's not at all the case today because there is no feeling of joint venture anymore. And how much of today's problems do you think can be traced back to these misunderstandings in 1989? Because I remember going to Russia in, well, it was then the Soviet Union in 1990. So the Berlin Wall had already fallen, but the Soviet Union was still there. And there was that sense of euphoria, but there was also certain expectations of a common European home. And there were ideas that Gorbachev was expounding about different ideas for European security architecture, which I think obviously not materialized because we've ended up in, in the world of today. But a lot of Russians will see that being the moments of the kind of original sin that promises were made and that a lot of the misunderstandings which we're living with today were sown then 30 years ago. First of all, of course, Gorbachev's vision of common European home and broader new world order, and it was uh, him who coined this uh, notion uh, initially. George H.W. Bush took it later when, when Soviet Union collapsed. So Gorbachev's vision was extremely beautiful but quite utopian from the beginning. And the most, the biggest difference between what happened in last period of the Soviet Union and what started after, Gorbachev, with all his positive feelings vis-a-vis -vis the West and America and, and Europe, he was leader of a superpower. And he believed that this common European home will be built by two architects, so, so to say, an American, American and Soviet, yeah. and and that was his uh, premise. That again, it would be a joint venture, as it used to be called, war confrontational joint venture. And he expected a peaceful joint venture. So we together build up, and Soviet Union will be the uh, one of two major stakeholders. It didn't happen. And when Russia came to the same vision or the same table. Of course, the uh, balance of power was completely different. Russia was not the Soviet Union. Russia was not a superpower. And more than that, Russia was in such a terrible shape after the collapse of the Soviet Union that it had to accept humanitarian aid from former adversaries, which I think this is quite underestimated in the West, how big disaster happened to our country in terms of status. Just one example. So early November 1991, it was a famous Madrid conference on the Middle East, still remembered as a very big event. And uh, two co-chairs, George Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev, as representatives of two pillars of world order, Soviet Union and U.S. Soviet Union was in terrible shape already. It was an agony, but formally it was still there early November. 
Late December same year, Russia, as legal successor of the Soviet Union, had to beg for humanitarian assistance in the U.S., in Europe, and so on. Empires collapsed before, and big powers died. But I cannot remember that speed of collapsing status as it happened in, in the case of Soviet Union. So that's why what happened after was a big shock to many people in Russia. And then we come to, to second circumstance, uh, the misunderstanding or, or maybe difference in opinions how the Cold War did end. Because the idea which I remember from my young years in Russia, in early Russia, Yeltsin was promoter of this idea and Kozarev and others. Cold War ended with when everybody won. So we, Russia was so common one of... Victory. Common victory. Common victory and Russia was one of those who won. While American view was different, of course, and the famous speech, State of the Nation, a State of the Union addressed by President Bush in January 92, which happened to be his last one, was literally, by God's grace, America won the Cold War. And he just emphasized, it, it did not end, we won it. Of course, it was a certain disharmony for Russia. No one claimed officially that Cold War ended with, so it, we did not sign any peace uh, agreement or capitulation or what. But this difference in, in perceptions that was hidden initially, because the Russian position was, okay, whatever they say, we are on, on the winner's side. But then it started to develop towards U.S. obvious dominance in world affairs. U.S., as a real uh, winner in the Cold War, started to shape international relations according to their perceptions. This uh, famous um, um, end-of-history metaphor started to be implemented in, into reality. And Russia... At the first stage, struggling against poverty, against collapse, and so Russia basically subscribed to that. And that was the first period until, until say, early Putin years was, okay, we don't like it, but what else we can do? And then step by step, it started to evolve into something else, into a feeling of actually defeated nation, which needs to recover and which needs to to take revenge. And when does this idea of the defeat take hold? I mean, a lot of people have set great store by the fact that Vladimir Putin wasn't at Moscow State University like you. He was, <laughs> he was in East Germany. He was facing rebelling East Germans and had to decide whether to, how to respond, whether to respond violently, whether to just let them through. And that he literally saw it as a defeat and a defeat of, of Russia in a way that you obviously didn't when you were sitting in the university. I didn't. Yeah, of course, Putin's rise to power was due to many circumstances and many, many reasons. But one of those reasons was that it was a growing demand in society for something else, because it was especially at the end of Yeltsin rule, it was such a high degree of conceptual confusion based on very poor record of democracy in Russia and economic collapse and so on. The reason why Putin came to power was multiple, so with some interests of Yeltsin family, but it was obvious demand in, in society for something else, because by the end of Yeltsin rule, Russian society lived in a feeling of increasing conceptual confusion and such a big disappointment in results of democracy and economic collapse and so on. So 
Putin came as a result of uh, feelings which already and sentiments which already emerged and existed in society. And if we remember one of turning points, of course, it was NATO enlargement which started uh, in second half of 1990. But uh, I would say the most important moment when big part of even pro-Western people in Russia started to be, uh, to put it mildly skeptical, that was war in Yugoslavia. So the bombing of a European country because of reasons which no one in Russia believed, that was something which brought many people to at least to be uh, to get doubts. And then Putin, by the way, in the beginning, whatever he thought about the uh, end of the Cold War, but he tried to orderly implement what Yeltsin never could do, so say, to bring Russia closer to the European Union, to launch a structural cooperation. It didn't work for many reasons. It was a clear difference in perceptions what role uh, Russia can play in this bigger community. And uh, Putin was confronted with the problem which we spoke uh, earlier about, that Gorbachev's vision of Russian or Soviet-European cooperation was about equality. And Putin also wanted to see Russia as a, an equal, uh, equal partner. partner to the European Union, which was not shared by, by EU because the idea offered to Russia was, okay, great, you can... You uh, can be like a large Poland. Large Poland, at least you should adapt uh, our norms our and rules, rules communautaire, not, not <laughs> formally, but informally, and then... And then we see what happens, because yeah. it was never an idea that Russia can join the European Union, yeah. but that Russia should somehow become part of this big European sphere. And that, again, even this was seen as acceptable at the beginning of 2000s. And then some other developments came, Iraq war, Georgian revolution, Ukrainian orange revolution, and so on, which brought Putin finally to the conclusion that, no, with the West, only through force you can uh, claim this equality. And how much of that do you think was to do with the trauma of 1989, the loss of the Soviet Union, the, the kind of humbling. Because it's very interesting if you read people's memoirs from around that time, Tony Blair was one of the first, I think he was the mm -hmm. first Western leader to meet Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. And there's a very interesting passage in his memoir, which is not overly full of introspection, his memoir. He does have some big regrets of introducing uh, freedom of information legislation and <laughs> banning fox hunting. The only, there are not, not many regrets around the Iraq war. But no. <laughs> The only non-domestic area of, of regret which he expresses is about Putin. And he says, actually, you know, we try, I, I thought that here was somebody that we could work with, we could build a different kind of relationship with, and maybe we didn't try hard enough, but we failed. But was that a kind of a messianic hope of Tony Blair's? Was the, were the structural problems too great? Or do you think that one could have had a radically different path at that time? I think it was a problem not for to, not not only for Tony Blair. He was not the greatest mind in Europe at that time. <laughs> I would say there were those who understood a little bit better what 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 Russia was. But even others, even Germans, even French, yeah. whom uh, Putin uh, used to have very close still intimate does in the German case. No? Uh, still does in German case. <laughs> in case of, just died, but, um... uh, Berlusconi. Yeah. <laughs> but still, even even those statesmen, they they operated in the framework of the European Union, which by default assumed that 
cooperation with Russia should be based on norms and rules of the European Union. And that was, by the way, a very interesting development, also very important for uh, what came after. This is uh, Russia's, Putin's behavior during, before and during Iraq war, big, 2003, because initially Putin had no interest to confront Americans because Russian position, he had very good personal relationship with George W. Bush and Russian position was basically, okay, guys, you make terrible mistake, but go ahead if you want. A Russian position changed profoundly after he met Chirac because Chirac convinced Putin and Chirac was the passionate anti-war crusader at that time, convinced Putin that this is utterly important to promote multipolar world. Putin did not speak about multipolar world be before he had uh, many hours in conversation with Chirac in, uh, I think, March 2003. And after this conversation, Putin suddenly said, oh, yes, we are against and so on. Why he did it? Not because he suddenly uh, understood how important multipolar world was, but he believed pragmatically that, okay, I, go, I do this. I risk my relationship with the United States, which was a big, big deal. But in return, he expected qualitatively different relationship with the European Union after that, because he ranked with Chirac, with Schroeder, with some other European leaders against this. What happened after? The Orange Revolution, the, the Rose Revolution and uh, the Orange Revolution. Uh, rose and Orange, yes, but even worse. <laughs> because when he then said, okay, and now it's time to establish real partnership, he was told by Chirac and Schott, yes, of course, Vladimir, but first go to Brussels, please, because you know this is European Union, we cannot do it. Go there and negotiate, we support you. And that was, to me, one of turning points when he just understood that Europe is structurally not okay to work with. And then step by step, all those revolutions uh, and many um, unfortunate developments inside Russia. So that brought us to, to the disaster of 2014. So looking back at 1989, Ivan Krestev has just written this new book where he talks about the age of imitation yeah. and how Russians were, were faking it mm. and then move to phase two, which is what you're talking about now of kind of mirroring the West and weaponizing imitation, whether it's on using the Kosovo justification to in uh, at the time of, of Georgia, of the Georgian war, but case by case, just taking, you know, interfering in, in Western elections in the same way that Westerners are meant to have interfered in, in other countries internal affairs. Do you think that that's the right characterization that they were just faking it in back in 1991? Or do you think that there were people who, who actually genuinely wanted to, to follow the path of, of Western liberal democracy in, in 1989? Well, in 1990, when Russia became independent, or yeah. how to call it, became Russian Federation, I think for many people, including those in power, they were very sincere. It was not, they did not see it as an imitation. It was, in fact, Asian, but it, it, not, not deliberately. They really believed they started to build up something according to Western uh, best practices and so. Then it started to change, but we see uh, Russia is, uh, is, a, is a very telling uh, illustration, but even uh, Ivan Krastev writes about that, that even Eastern Europe, it was at the end not exactly what was proclaimed in, in, in 1990s and 2000s. So we see how much different uh, development was in, in different countries. 
This is a very nice description. I think Russian leaders should be pleased how Ivan describes that strategy to mirror and to say to respond with the same coin to the West. I don't think it was that sophisticated. But of course, Putin tried from the beginning, from Iraq, starting from Iraq war, first rhetorically, then in actions, to bring one idea to the West, to Europeans, to Americans. If you do something, expect results. And paradoxically, it was a very fresh idea for many politicians, especially at that time, when euphoria after 89 was still alive. And many in the West really started to believe that they are able to shape everything. What, whatever they believe is correct, they can do it. And Putin started to remind them that, you know, if you do this, then, then something else would happen. If you push the button, then expect something other. And it started, yeah, I think Kosovo was, and he, he, he said it actually openly. After Kosovo recognition, it was a quite a clear warning that, you know, or before Kosovo recognition, don't do it, because if you do it, then something else will happen. I and remember going to Moscow shortly after the war in Georgia and... I mean, literally in the days afterwards, I think, mm -hmm. and, and meeting people with like, because yeah. I think Dugin yeah, I remember, was one yeah. of the mm -hmm. first people to start mm -hmm. using the language of genocide and laying out exactly the same rhetoric that the West yeah, had that, used. That was a bit unfortunate, and then it was removed <laughs> quite, quite quickly. <laughs> But yes, of course, the idea that they, those bastards do things, and they believe that only those have rights to do this, <laughs> Forget it. Now it's different because now actually everybody learned lessons. Even in the West, euphoria is almost. And we are, why I coming back to your very first question about whether 89 was a real turning point for Russia. And for, now I tend to believe that 89 was a big change, of course, big change. But it was not a turning point yet because it was not collapse of the whole international order. That was collapse of a part of this order, the half of this order, while the, the other half, the other part, sincerely believed that it was possible to extend the remaining part to the rest. So basically, that's very interesting contradiction when Russians and Westerners discuss all this theoretical stuff about world order, liberal world order, what kind, when it started, because liberal world order after 91 was different than Cold War system. But at the same time, it was continuation of yeah. the Cold War system, except one, one element. So German unification becomes the model for the whole thing, that you basically yeah. just invite the rest of the exactly, world exactly, to take yeah. part, but not to shape it in the same way that exactly. East it, Germany had to follow West German norms. Absolutely. And that was like not a negotiated integration, but like a merger and acquisition. And now we are really coming to the, to the profound change because that system is uh, not working anymore. It's well understood in Russia, but it's now well understood in the West as well. And what comes next, no one knows. But See, certainly 20th century is over because this continuation was part of 20th century. So when did it end, the 20th century? I think 20th century did end... Uh, Not 2014, but 2015, when Russia intervened in Syria. Okay. So before we come to an end, the other country that has obviously studied 
Russia's 1989 very closely is China. And we're going to deal with that in a separate podcast. But I've spoken over the years to lots of Chinese people who have all sorts of theories about what went wrong mm -hmm. <laughs> in Moscow in, in 1989 and 1991. Do you think they were right to, to, in their analysis of the, the mistakes? I mean, how does, it, how does that look, the comparison from Moscow between your 1989 and the Chinese 1989? They were right and they were wrong. Uh, right because, yes, uh, Chinese and they studied very carefully each minute of uh, this last, last period of the Soviet Union, they uh, rightly identified all uh, mistakes uh, or stupidities made by Gorbachev, how he started transformation without having any idea how to end it and so on. What and do you think the other ones are? It would be interesting to hear your list. So he starts it without having any idea where to end it. What are the other big mistakes that Gorbachev makes? Uh, he, of course, he uh, preferred to launch political transformation before starting to change econ economic model, which led to very quick political opening and then collapse before economy could, could, could adapt. Uh, many things. So Gor I, I don't, uh, I don't want to blame everything on Gorbachev because, for, because why Chinese, Chinese are wrong. Because at the time when uh, Gorbachev came, it was too late. In China, it was not too late to try to transform the system by sometimes by brutal means like Deng Xiaoping decided to crack down this uprising and so. But it was, still possible to put it on the right track. In our case, I'm sure the time for change was missed in late 60s, when Soviet Union decided not to continue some modest but still economic reforms, and when Soviet Union decided to crack down some very modest, actually limited awakening in Eastern Europe. And that was this, this, this point after which Soviet Union went the path which led to to collapse because when Gorbachev came he tried what he he was a schoolmate university schoolmate uh, with Zdenek Mlynarz and he actually wanted to do something which uh, Czechs and Slovaks did in 68 but that was absolutely of, out of touch anymore and uh, in this regard yes if Gorbachev would be more uh, sophisticated and uh, if he would understand uh, reality better, maybe collapse would be delayed. But I don't think he could do something like Chinese did. Okay. So we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Are there any books which you would recommend or articles or, or films which you would recommend to people who want to try and understand Russia's 1989? Uh, you know, that's, that's very easy because I think despite everything we discussed about, about Gorbachev. But his book, which was called New Political Thinking for Our Country and the Whole World, which was uh, published, I think, 87. And that was the Bible for perestroika and the whole new political thinking. It's extremely interesting to read now, because now you see both how beautiful the vision uh, was and also how totally utopian it, it, it actually sounded. And uh, to analyze why uh, Gorbachev's uh, perestroika failed, 
is very important not for to understand Russia or to understand the West, but just to understand why international relations work like they do and not in a way some uh, very talented uh, writers or people with big fantasy can produce. Great. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you very much, Fyodor, for Thank talking you. to me. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let your friends and acquaintances know about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on your social media page or on ours. We will put links to all the publications that were mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Fyodor Lukianov and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Marlene Riedel and our researcher is Jonathan Hakenbrosch.